right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, here we are again. Another episode of, you know, revisiting the road to serfdom, right? Kevin of Engineering Politics and myself are going through this book chapter by chapter, um, trying to help people understand the importance and the significance and the relevance, um, increasing relevance of Hayek's seminal work um, that was written mostly as a warning against socialism, I would say is uh, one of the best ways to sum it up. But last time we went over chapters one and two. Uh, Kevin, you want to walk people through kind of what what those chapters were about and what they missed. And, and we'll put links to all this stuff for you guys, but just to recap for, for the folks at home. Yeah, sure. So right now we're going to be on chapter three. So chapter one, cover the introduction material. Chapter two, or not chapter two, episode one, cover the introduction material. Episode two, cover chapter one and two. Um, and so, so just to do a quick summary of chapter one, uh, chapter one was titled The Abandoned Road, and it was mainly about abandoning the road to liberalism, which was the road that was creating progress and prosperity. And it was kind of this, you know, road developed over time that we're able to kind of learn from and, and see what created the best uh, prosperous country or created the, the most individual freedom. Um, you know, the, this concept of individual freedom and individual liberty was relatively new. I mean, considering human history, it's extremely new, right? But we found that we're able to progress as a whole, as a collective, um, as acting as a part of a more liberal society. And now this is the part where I want to make sure that we, we get our you know, um, our definition is correct because I know a lot of conservative people out there, a lot of people who are like, oh, those darn liberals. Um, we are talking about the definition of liberalism in the 19th European sense. That is uh, individual freedom. Yeah, 19th century um, sense, which is individual freedom from government coercion. So that is the actual definition of liberalism. And when we talk about liberalism in this context, the, the Hayekian context, <laughs> That is what we're going to be talking about. It is not the American sense, which, uh, you know, Hayek calls out in the introduction saying, why are you liberals allowing these other people to hijack this word? But in the American sense, it is the exact opposite. It is government intervention into everything or the advocation for that. So that is, is not what we're talking about when we talk about liberalism. We're talking about it in the, the European sense. And then we went on to chapter two, which is uh, titled The Great Utopia, which is the adoption of socialism and collectivism. So once we veered off that road, we now veered on a different path that instead of the road to liberalism, we're going on the road to servitude. And then that is where he gets into words like planning, which I know you can explain. Yeah. So um, just to piggyback on what you just said briefly, you know, what I said in the first one and say it every single time is that whenever you hear liberal, when you hear Hayek say liberal, think of probably our, our modern context, just think conservative, libertarian type thing, honestly. Um, that's going to give you the best understanding of what he's talking about. Uh, and so, but planning, yeah, so planning is this, this word that was, was thrown, uh, thrown around, which really just means um, a top-down direction of the, meet, the first off resources, and then those resources being put towards like various ends and stuff. So the opposite of planning would be, or at least planning in this sense, and Hayek does a good job of saying like, look, there's two different kinds of planning here. Every single person who wants to solve common problems as a planner. Um, and so he says, but whenever we're talking about planning, we're talking about planning that is, uh, doesn't use competition, that doesn't use the free market. This is you have someone at the top or a group of you know benevolent um, philosopher kings at the top who are making decisions of this is what prices should be. This is where these resources should go. This is where these resources should go. And planning just everything about society, everything about economic transactions, everything about like the how should our collective labor be um, allocated and how should resources be allocated? So planning is, is in a sense, if you think about like a wartime economy, when there's rationing, um, when you think about like, no, this factory is going to make this, um, you're not going to make refrigerators anymore. You're going to make tanks um, because we need tanks. And we said so now in a wartime context, sure, that makes sense. But this is like a peacetime context of basically you're, the government's going to decide where resources go, who gets what, and what things cost. Um, and it's not left up to the market. It's not left up to like the price mechanism and individual like uh, transactions and mutually beneficial transactions. It's up to, you know, people at the top to decide that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so planning is not really a term that's thrown around as much now, 
So, and even Hayek has said this in one of his later introductions that it's not a word you see often, but socialism is now a word that's becoming uh, more and more popular. And that was a word that he said, uh, you know, <laughs> in, after World War II, that, that was a word that was completely off limits. We don't talk about that. That's just a naughty word, but he said it will be rebranded and reinstituted in some way in the future. And he could have not been more right there. Uh, you know, we have open socialists in the American government and open socialists in just about every uh, Western government right now. So, uh, you know, this came true. And this is the reason why this book is so important now is to to say, hey, this is the road that we saw Germany go down. This is the road we saw Italy go down. Um, and he wasn't even able to expand into Russia yet because he wrote it in 1944. Um, but, you know, he's he he uh, inspired people like George Orwell to talk about things that kind of went along the road of capitalism or, cap, or communism. So, um, you know, we, we see what happens when, when you move that far down. So I don't know if we want to dive into it right now. Chapter three. Yeah. One, one of the things I would just add and then, yeah, um, is. He does say, you know, you're talking about how we don't use planning and, and stuff anymore, but one of the things that, that does get used, and I think he mentions this in, in maybe the one of the 76 or something, is that it's now it's words like um, social justice or, you know, bureaucracies and these kinds of uh, things um, that are that are being used or like new liberties, new freedoms. Um, and so it's, it's the same idea as just being rebranded. But yeah, so chapter three. Um, is called individualism and collectivism. And one of the things that, you know, it's been funny at least the last couple of times that Kevin and I have went through this, you know, that we'll have the exact same quotes and the exact same things in mind um, that we, we think are important and want to go over. And one of the things we did last time was there is a huge section um, in the middle of one of those chapters. I think it was chapter one, actually, that was like, this is worth unpacking. This is worth diving into. In the beginning of chapter three, individualism, collectivism, again, there's a link to a PDF that at least goes through chapter three. You guys can follow along if, if you want. Um, but we're going to unpack this thing because I would say, and Kevin, you can tell me if um, if you agree or disagree, but I feel like this is probably one of the most prescient things, um, at least so far, that we've covered. And, and we're going to get into this time and time again where you read this and you're like, okay, this could have been written in 1944 or it could have been written two weeks ago. Um, and, and so this to me seems like one of those sections that it, it is incredibly relevant for mapping onto our current context and worth kind of dissecting, in, you know, as such, I, I don't know what, yeah. if you would agree with that statement, this, this is I don't the know if I'm overstating it. No, this is the trade-off that you get when you read very profound people is they're great, but every page you have to stop and think for like a half an hour and be like, wow. Mm-hmm. Like, what did I just read? How How is this applicable to now? And th this is what happened here. I mean, I think I, I copied the first three paragraphs verbatim because of of how great he, he uh, dove into the subject matter and how relevant it is today. So he, he does this time and time again. And I know we'll, we'll probably say this during every single episode, be like, all right, we had to quote this big chunk because it was just so good. Uh, but, you know, it's a good problem to have. So, so I'll read um, just through the first part part here, and then we can kind of unpack it, and then we'll read through the next yeah. part. Does that sound okay? Do we want um, to read the opening uh, quote? Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to add that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so the chapter opens with this quote: uh, "The socialists believe in two things, which are absolutely different, and perhaps even contradictory: freedom and organization." Uh, Eli Halavi. I don't know who that person is, but they are right in that quote. Uh, so, so here's the section. Before we can progress with our main problem, an obstacle has yet to be surmounted. A confusion largely responsible for the way in which we are drifting into things which nobody wants must be cleared up. This confusion concerns nothing less than the concept of socialism itself. It may mean it being socialism and is often used to describe merely the ideals of social justice, greater equality, and security which are the ultimate aims of socialism. This is, I'm going to read that again. So he's saying socialism may mean and is being used to describe by a lot of these people merely the ideals of social justice, greater equality, and security, which are the ultimate aims of socialism. But it means also the particular method by which most socialists hope to attain these ends and which many competent people regard as the only methods by which they can be fully and quickly attained. In this sense, socialism means the abolition of private enterprise, of private ownership, and the means of production, and the creation of a system of 
planned economy in which the entrepreneur working for profit is replaced by a central planning body. There are many people who call themselves socialists, although they care only about the first, who fervently believe in those ultimate aims of socialism, like social justice, but neither care nor understand how they can be achieved, and who are merely certain that they must be achieved, whatever the cost. But to nearly all those whom socialism is not merely a hope, but an object of practical policies, the characteristic methods of modern socialism are as essential as the ends themselves. Many people, on the other hand, who value the ultimate ends of socialism, no less than the socialists, refuse to support socialism because of the dangers to other values they see in the methods proposed by socialists. This dispute about socialism has thus become largely a dispute about means, not about ends. Although the question whether the different ends of socialism can simultaneously be achieved is also involved. So let's stop there. There's a lot to unpack there that seems super prescient. Um, and it's just like, this is the same argument that, that we've been having, that, that we've been having maybe even since Bernie Sanders, um, in terms of at least broke out in the surface, um, you know, in the 2016 presidential campaign. It's just, it's, it seems like the same argument. Yeah, and there's this really, really good quote that I, I think of here that I cannot remember who said it and it verbatim, but it's about vice and virtue, where vice is not the absence of virtue. It is just choosing one virtue above all the other ones. And this is what I think about when it comes to here. It's not that you're attempting to do something evil by by implementing planning. You're not attempting to, to say, I want to hurt people. You are saying that we need to fix this one problem, whether it be some form of social justice or some other form of uh, you know, war on poverty or something else. We must achieve this at whatever the cost. So what are you trading off by achieving that? And we get in more to this in the next chapter when it comes to, to um, you know, specialists and, and these experts that we talk about. Yep. Um, but you know, it is the single-minded person who's focused on this one thing and they don't care about the costs uh, of it. So I think, you know, that's exactly what I think of when um, it comes to to trying to use central planning to achieve a certain goal, because this goal has to be forced on the people. You have yep. to get rid of the individual freedom, the individual liberty aspect in order to gain what you want for the collective. But the, the tricky little part is here, uh, the collective is always going to be controlled by a, a central entity so it's not really collective at all it just claims to be it, it forces these ideals onto the people rather than allowing them to choose their own ideals yeah exactly and and like you just said it, it's being forced on people hence the quote at the beginning you know socialists believe in two things that are probably contradictory which is freedom and organization you can substitute organization for planning there and you know whenever i say this is the argument that, that we've been having you know to kind of sum up what hayek was saying there you know, I know that was kind of a longer quote, but but for people who are you know listening or watching, he, he's saying, look, there are people who are saying socialism, and what they're they're not talking about a political system. They're not talking about a means of accomplishing something. They're just talking about what they want to happen. So in their minds, socialism is synonymous with social justice. Socialism is synonymous with equality. Socialism is synonymous with security. And so he's saying people are using this word to describe the things that they want to happen. And he's like, look, and, and, th and this is where I'm like, this is the same argument where you hear these conservatives saying, we probably want the same things. We just disagree on how to get there and what's the best way to achieve these things. And so Hayek is saying like, there, there are people who wholeheartedly agree with the, these ends that these other, these advocates of socialism want, but they outright reject socialism. Um, and, and I like how he says, uh, they refuse to support it because of the dangers to other values they see in the methods proposed by the socialists. And so, but what you see on, on you know, this is primarily a left-wing phenomenon, um, is that, look, it's like, you don't agree with this policy, so therefore you're anti-woman or you're anti-black or something like that. You're, you know, you don't care about people. You don't care about kids. You don't care about these things. You don't care about the same values. And so that's where you get this, like, moralizing and moral posturing and bullying where it's like it's a it's a complete straw man and defamation of character where it's saying okay just because i don't agree with that this is the best way to do something or even an intelligent or moral way to do something like to say that i don't care about the ends is ridiculous because i'm not saying we shouldn't want this i'm saying that your way of getting it done 
is a bad way of getting it done. And so it's the same freaking argument that we have over and over and over again. Oh, you don't support the um, welfare you know, programs. You don't support these things and that thing. Oh, you don't care about poor people. You don't care about the inner city. You don't care about that. And it's, and it's, this, it's like that rhyming. It's this freaking rhyming over and over and over again where they use this moralizing language to bully people, to like make it seem like they're the bad guy. And, it, and, it, and what it does ultimately, so Hayek is saying, this is about means, not about ends. And we have to have a conversation about means, but the people who are doing this, who are conflating these two things are taking the conversation completely in a different direction than anything about ends or means. And it's, and it's all about like who you are as a person. You're a bad person. You're, you're, you don't care. You're immoral. You're an oppressive person. You're calloused and uncaring um, because you don't agree with my, with my ends. And so now the conversation shifts to what are your, uh, how, how, how do you feel on the inside as a person? How compassionate are you? Instead of having some fact-based conversation about what's the best way to do this thing? What's the, okay, why are we talking about how much I care or don't care about people according to your set? assertion instead of hey maybe school choice is a good idea and here's the arguments about it you know what i mean um and so it just blows my mind how this is just a rehash of this these same arguments that are dominating it's the same people moralizing and grandstanding on these things um and and, and in the meantime the problems only get worse yeah i mean what uh, the perfect example of this which is something we align on and not necessarily you the listener might might agree with but it's you know abortion like we want to make sure that women have more autonomy, that they're able to enter the workforce and, and have the same rights as men. But the means to get there means you gotta, you can abort a child. Like yeah. you and I were like, we don't agree with those means. I don't that think make any that, sense. that's yeah. not a trade-off that we think is, is worth having. We actually find it would be extraordinarily immoral. So, you know, that's an example of like, those means are evil, even if the ends are justified. And I want those ends too. I don't want some, a woman to not have the same opportunities that I do just because uh, you know, something happened to her or she made a bad decision. Right. Um, so to get yep. into that next paragraph, which I don't think this would be enough to create confusion. You didn't read that paragraph yet. Right. I didn't. Can I just add one thing really yeah. fast that, that I think um, is, is, is worth adding there is that I think it's fair to say that most of the people making these arguments don't realize they're having a different conversation. Most of the people who are, who are, and I, and I know I'm thinking of people, whether it's my past self before I, you know, actually knew things, um, or people that I know, that most of the people who are having this argument about, like, I can't believe you don't care about that, I can't believe that, don't realize that they're having a conversation that's different than the conversation we're having. We're having a conversation about, like, I agree with you, what's the best way to do this? And they hear, you, uh, you don't agree with how I want to do it, therefore you don't care about the ends. And I, and I think this is a, a testament to the propagandizing and the, and the really, really effective, um, really in a lot of ways brainwashing of these well-intentioned people, you know, the very smart people as James Lindsay would call them useful idiots um, from the Soviet Union. This is a, a, a testament to the success of that is that I think most of the people who make these arguments are largely making it in good faith, although maybe there's a willful ignorance involved there, um, and that, it, that it's not necessarily um, them intentionally trying to demagogue the issue if that makes sense yeah. just to try and be charitable to, to a lot of these people absolutely um so to continue on the quote uh this would be enough to create confusion and the confusion has been further increased by the common practice of denying that those who repudiate the means value the ends is exactly what we just talked about here is saying that if you do not agree with the means even though we have the same ends you are an evil person that this is the the switch they have there but it doesn't end there mm -hmm. so but this is not all the situation is still more complicated by the fact that the means the economic planning which is the prime instrument of socialist reform can be used for many other purposes we must essentially direct economic activity if we want to make the distribution of income conform to the current ideas of social justice planning therefore is wanted by all those who demand that production for use be substituted for production for profit. So production for use that um, Hayek, I think, brought up a bit in the introduction is a really, really common phrase that they used in the 1940s to switch out for production for profit. I don't really know. I haven't really heard many people talk about production for use, although through the back end, Bernie Sanders, AOC, you've certainly heard those people saying, look at these evil people who just want profit. 
you know, yep. we should we should demand that they use it for people who just need it and they don't worry about the profit. Like, you know, Cl- take climate profit. alarmist, climate yeah. justice. Well, the big one to me is, is healthcare. Is healthcare yep. is, is a huge yep. one. It's like, why mm. why do you evil yep. corporations want to make money? Well, they want to make money because they could turn around a vaccine in nine months when it normally takes a year and a half at best. That is what the profit motive does for you. So, you know, they're trying to eliminate that and substitute in uh, this phrase that they used to use a lot called production for use. So continue quote, but such planning is no less indispensable if the distribution of incomes is to be regulated in a way in which to us appears to be the opposite of just whether we should wish that more of the good things of this world should go to some racial elite, the Nordic men, or the members of a party or an aristocracy. The methods which we shall have to employ are the same as those which could ensure the equalitarian distribution. So, yeah, yeah, good, good question. Um, So yeah, right there is, is, you know, this planning can be used for a lot of things that, you know, the planners are going to claim are just, but you can use it for some awful purpose. Think, uh, you know, Germany in the, the 1940s, they used this for some evil, awful purposes that were used for, you know, a racial elite creating, um, you know, more living space for the people who they deemed are properly fit to have kids and, you know, expand uh, the gene pool and to eliminate those who who weren't. So these planning authorities, because it's a centralized power and because it's not only used for the purpose that they say they want to use it for, but they can now expand this power to use it for now purposes as long as they're in. Again, you know, Hitler was uh, democratically elected. He was able to get in and claim that I want to make your life better. And then while he got that power, he's like, all right, I'm making all these other changes that, you know, might make your life better depending on, you know, how you're born or what you believe. Um, so, you know, to, to really caution yourself when you have anyone coming to you saying like, just give me a little bit more power and I can do all these things for you. That's going to make your life better. Yep. Can I read the next quote here? Because I think it's a, it, and then we can synthesize like those two, th- those two things, because I think the next quote is like exactly like what we're talking about. Yet, although to most socialists, only one species of collectivism will represent true socialism, it must always be remembered that socialism is a species of collectivism and that therefore everything which is true of collectivism as such must also apply to socialism. It must also not be forgotten that socialism is not only by far the most important species of collectivism or planning, but that it is socialism, uh, but that it it is socialism which has persuaded liberal-minded people to submit once more to that regimented regimentation of economic life, which they had overthrown because, in the words of Adam Smith, it puts government in a position where, to support themselves, they're obligated to be oppressive and tyrannical, end quote. So I think that was, that's worth mentioning there because it's like what you were saying and, you know, that that's an extension of that other part where he's like, look, you want these, uh, you want these goals, you want social justice, you want all of these other things. Um, But what you need to understand is that this is like this central planning and the socialism, this is a, this is collectivism. So you're wanting to use collectivism to achieve these means and you need to look and see where, where are the other places where this ideology has been implemented to its logical conclusion, as like Ayn Rand would say, and what did it lead to? And he's like, look, the same means, which is planning here, that are used to create a, you know, putting all of the good things to some racial elite, which would be the Nordic men and, you know, with Nazism, or the members of a party or an aristocracy those are the, the same way that those things come to pass, which we would all agree are evil, are the same things you're wanting to use to ensure, you know, equ- um, equalitarian distribution. And it's like, the, it's the one ring. It's what was his name? Bro- Bromir in the first one wasn't, wasn't Bromir in the, in the first Lord of the Rings movie where he's like, we can use it. We can, we can use the ring for good. Um, and, and it can't be done. He's saying like, Whenever you centralize all these things, and I know we'll get into this in later chapters where it's like, this leads to tier, this, you know, that's the thing over and over and over again. This will, that's how he starts this chapter, right? This is, we're drifting into things no one wants. No one wants real socialists. If they saw where this goes would be appalled um, at the consequences of their ideas. And so Hayek is saying, look, like there, this is a disagreement about means, not about ends. The means that we we want to use as li- liberals in the true sense, we want to stay on the road that has brought us here in the first place. It's a slow process, 
but it's a process we know that leads to this. And there's this other, the road you're wanting to get on is a form of collectivism. It's the most important form of collectivism. And it's the same way in which, um, whether it's a, a racial elite or an aristocracy or a party or whatever, gains absolute power and control over a society and tyrannizes the hell out of its population afterwards. And it is wildly naive and irrational even to assume that you can go down that road and you'll be the exception, right? Like true tyranny has never been, never been tried. Like true <laughs> benevolent tyranny has never been tried, you know, basically. And it's just a ridiculous idea. Yeah. I mean, I like what you said before that, um, you know, they, they implement the same strategy that they're fighting against. So to me, like, mm -hmm. you know, they, they try to get rid of uh, the racial elite by creating racial elite. And we'll get into later. They, they try to eliminate monopoly by creating a government run monopoly. Um, yep. But, you know, I think of, you know, the, the uh, anti-racism CRT stuff that's happening lately. Racism, you know, uses racial discrimination. Non-racism tries to eliminate discrimination, tries to say, we don't care about this discrimination. It'll naturally go away when people, you know, know they can freely exchange with other people. Anti-racism brings back the racist idea of racial discrimination. It is, mm -hmm. it is using fire to fight fire, I guess, in that way, rather than water yeah. to fight fire, like a normal person. <laughs> so it, it is flipping this. And this is that, I mean, I, I bring up CRT because that's a part of social justice, which is explicitly what we're talking about here. You know, Hay Hayek understood that, uh, you know, what Marx started with uh, trying to make everyone care about all these economic issues has now moved to kind of post-Marxism where it has expanded to social issues where you get social justice and all these other, uh, you know, projects that these people want to work on and hammer down and create this new brand of equality, which is now equity, um, and control everyone's life via a central power, via that coercion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the the Kendi quote, right? The only remedy for past dis discrimination is present discrimination. The only rem remedy for or the only remedy for yeah, past discrimination yeah. is is pre present discrimination. Yeah. The only remedy for future discrimination or present discrimination is future discrimination. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's saying we need to use discrimination, get rid of discrimination, which of course is insane, um, insanely yeah. illogical. Uh, and, and like we mentioned the last episode. The thing is, these people, like, they, they put this out there. They're not hiding the ball, you know, totally. especially the yeah. people at the, the, the thought leaders in this. Is like, they don't hide the ball um, and, you know, believe in what they say. Don't try to take what they say and be like, well, what they probably meant was, you know, a nicer version of whatever they're saying. Like, no, just, just believe in them. Trust them. Yep. So I don't think we need to read all of this next quote um, to extract extract some yeah. ideas from it. But one of the things that we've mentioned before in previous episodes is that Hayek was actually charitable to his opponents' um, arguments, almost to a fault. Um, he was incredibly charitable to them. And he actually got criticism for that, you know, being too charitable to some of these ideas. But he does a good job in the rest of this chapter because he's like, look, this is a disagreement about means, not about ends. Um, and so, like, we want to talk about, like, what are your arguments? What are your concerns? What are the things that you're trying to do that you're trying to accomplish? Um, and, and what are the arguments you might have against us? And Hayek spends a good amount of time saying, I'm not arguing against government intervention per se. I'm not arguing against the, the existence of government. In fact, um, there are places in which it, you have to have this. Um, and he quotes Adam Smith that, you know, at one point, I think it was Adam Smith who says, there's no situation in which a government would do nothing. Um, or, which a reasonable person would think that the government would do or would just sit and do nothing. Um, and so like we can get into that of where he's saying um, and, and you just bolded that. So why don't, why don't you read yeah. that and kind of you yeah. know, piggyback on what you think is the most important part of this? Yeah. So like you said, he's not against all forms of government intervention or regulation, but um, what he does want to parse out is really the argument against uh, what he calls here the liberal plan, which is allowing individual freedom and the price system to plan out the economy. Uh, and so he goes here, this liberal plan, which I said, according to them is no plan. And it is indeed not a plan designed to satisfy particular views about who should have what, right? So they're, this, they're, they're concerned point. that these individuals, like how can they get together and figure out what's best for society? We ought to do that. You know, a central authority ought to do that. To continue the quote, what our planners demand is a central direction of all economic activity according to a single plan, laying down how the resources of society should be consciously directed 
to serve particular ends in a definite way. That's what they want. Yep. The modern planner wants to, to say, you know what, this individual liberty stuff, you know, it's great and all this other stuff, but the plan that I want to accomplish has to be directed by a central authority. And yep. that's important. And we can't rely on all these people to do what they want. Exactly. And one of the things later in the quote, which I think is, is important, is he says, the question is whether for this purpose it is better for the holder of coercive power should confine themselves in general to creating conditions under which the knowledge and initiative of individuals are given the best scope so that they can plan most successfully or whether rational, utiliz rational utilization of our resources requires central direction and organization of all our activities according to some consciously constructed blueprints. So what he's saying there is, when he says holder of course of power, that's government. Government has a monopoly on violence, right? That's, that's the quote. Um, and so he's saying, this is, there are these people who say, well, the government has a monopoly on violence. They have coercive power. And for them to not use coercive power to bring about the things that I think are most valuable, which again, we'll get into the experts and, and their, you know, their very narrow and limited understanding of society here in a little bit. But he's saying they think that for the government to not get involved in these things constitutes no plan. And it goes back to what Hayek said in um, The Abandoned Road in chapter one, where he says, look, the, the role of a liberal is like someone who has a garden. Like you can't make the plant grow. All you can do is try to make sure that the environment and the setting is conducive for growth. But at some point, it's, it's not up to you. you just, you're there to try and make sure that the atmosphere is conducive for growth. Um, and there are, there are these people who say, that's not a plan at all. You have course of power. You need to use it and throw your weight around and throw your monopoly on violence around to accomplish all these things that I think are best. And you have to do it this way or else you don't care. Um, like, like I said, it's, it's about should it be consciously directed to certain particular ends uh, of a definite way. And so, again, it goes back to this is a conversation about means, not ends. Um, and here he's saying there are people who say you, this should be top down by some benevolent, you know, leaders who I guess are incorruptible in any way, but with uh, absolute power, or do you let this thing of, you know, because um, what, what was the, um, the, the quote from, was it the eighties? Maybe, maybe earlier, I could be wrong, but it's like, is the, is the economy stupid or is the market stupid? Um, and it's like, no, just because there is no one directing this thing doesn't mean that it, it doesn't make sense and it has a, a sense of harmony to it like there's no one in the ocean directing schools of fish to go this way or coordinate in these you know manners but the ocean is a very logically constructed ecosystem with you know different fish doing different things there's coral reefs there's a deep sea all these other things and, and it makes perfect sense there is no you know uh, Aquaman, King of Atlantis, down there, making sure that these fish well, go into this. That. And the, that's true. <laughs> that's true. We've that's explored true. most of the ocean, man. I'm just saying. It feels like a Jason, very Jason tree. Momoa might be down there. <laughs> that's right. Um, it's like we, the evidence is inconclusive uh, <laughs> to the existence of Aquaman. But but anyway, and so, but the point is, is that these people see like people conducting mutually beneficial transactions without anyone, you know telling them how to do it and what they should value as having no plan at all, um, which is crazy. And so they see, well, you have course of power, you need to use it um, to, to accomplish my goals. And this, is, this, goes, this is, goes back to collectivism. This is what collectivism is, is a top-down collective going to grouping everyone together and all the resources to follow some centralized plan and some centralized allocation of resources and values, um, which they don't think is, this is a hierarchy. When you prioritize this, and you're demoting all of these other things and other, their cost to these things. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so he, you know, we kind of mentioned at the beginning that he's not completely against government regulation, government intervention. I, I like his response to it. So I kind of paraphrase a little bit here and then I have a quote coming in later, but um, I guess you can get into the paraphrase. What I wrote here is uh, Hayek believes in free market economics, but understands that the proper response to socialist or collectivist proposals is not dogmatic laissez-faire attitudes. So the do dogmatic laissez-faire attitudes is something that he puts in there. And that's something I think of when you think of like Ayn Rand. Like I'm a conservative. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are pretty big fans of Ayn Rand, but I think she's got some significant uh, flaws in, in her ideology. And I think the dogmatism of laissez-faire economics is one of those things to say there's no there's no room for any sort of government involvement at all, um, which I think that that's certainly flawed. But we're not going to get into here. But 
So uh, I continue to say regulation via the government uh, does, does, does have an important place in society. And then here's Hayek's thoughts on the main advantages of what he calls economic liberalism. So I'm going to quote uh, from the book here. Economic liberalism regards competition as superior, not only because it is in most circumstances, the most efficient method known, but even more because it is the only method by which our activities can be adjusted to each other without coercive or arbitrary intervention mm -hmm. of authority. So this is the part that he gets into the, you know, the competition, this, this, what he calls the price system, which is a, a form of competition is the best way to do things efficiently, but, but also the best way to adjust these activities to each other. When you have a central power, they don't normally worry about adjusting activities to much of anything except for their political goals. Right. Yep. So they, they'll adjust just freely on there, but how often are those political goals going to line up with um, even a majority of people who, who voted that central authority in? It doesn't often do that. So the, the idea, this is the reason we want to maintain the free market and free enterprise is because we're able to adjust our activities to each other uh, via, you know, currency exchange and just free trade. Yep. I mean, that's what Hayek calls the, the fatal conceit of socialism, which is that, and again, going back to that quote at the beginning of the chapter, it's that that organization and freedom can coexist. Um, and this idea that, you know, it, what he calls that fatal conceit is like, okay, the bigger the plan, like, and the more centralized it is, then the more you have to limit those who disagree with the plan, you have to curtail them, you have to curtail their freedom. So you have to either silence them, you have to use coercion on them, or, you know, you have to ignore them. But, but either way, like, you, whenever, you are, again, it's, this is a competition of ideals. Um, and he gives an example, I think, in the next chapter of like a, a cars and some other things of like, maybe, you know, maybe you could do this, but there's, but all of these hypotheticals are so unworkable and so impractical that it's like, they're not even worth entertaining. Um, and by no means even constitute the only way in which these things would happen. Um, and so, but the point is, is that as you have this centralized the centralized plan, what do you do with, what if only 65% of the people want it? What do you do with the other 35%? And like, how limited are they? Like, how much are you like going to have to remove their freedom or their ability to do these things or participate in society in order to make sure this, this plan can be implemented? I mean, this is the, goes back to the classic that we're not a democracy on purpose, at least in the United States, we're a constitutional republic because, um, true democracy is mob rule. I mean, it is tyranny of a majority on a minority, full stop. Um, the nation of and it laws, will always only people. be that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so like you have to understand that. And whenever you like, and that's why it's important to make sure that people have as much freedom to do the things that they want to do. And so it like the government's job is to maintain the ecosystem, not to tell them what they should and shouldn't care about. Um, because whenever you do that, it comes at a cost to someone who might have an entirely opposite perspective, which is, again, is something he gets into later. Um, and, and one of the things I do kind of want to briefly touch on is I think this, this idea where he, he mentions that, you know, laissez-faire, like dogmatic laissez-faire attitudes towards the market, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I find myself at constant tension with is I've been reading and listening to a lot of this stuff about like anarchism and like these like super libertarian guys like Mises um, and, and Rothbard and, and so on that it's like, and I was listening to Michael Malice explain, I was telling you before we started recording, explain like anarchism to this guy who was like trying to understand it. Some Bitcoin guy, the way this guy was talking about Bitcoin made Bitcoin sound like a religion to some of these Bitcoiners as he put it on like, what the, f anyway. Um, and so, but, but anyway, you know, Malice had this idea of, because, you know, Michael Malice is someone who, I, by the way, I respect a lot. I think The New Right's a fantastic book. Um, I want to read his book on North Korea, Dear Reader. Um, so I, I like the guy. And I, he's, one, he's a person who he's, I find myself agreeing with a lot of his presuppositions about the nature of, of things. Um, but whereas I don't see his, his solutions as being workable. And maybe there are no solutions to some of these things. But, you know, we're... Malice would say something like, okay, because he's someone who thinks there should be no government, right? So this is something that Hayek is arguing against when he brings up dogmatic laissez-faire. Um, and, you know, Malice would say, well, the idea that we, do, that we need government, you know, so that we can have some kind of rules and regulations, he's like, well, 
what if you go into Macy's and you might have to have a car or some other like upscale department store. He calls it velvet rope. He's like, I'm a very big velvet rope component or proponent where, you know, places should be able to restrict who does and doesn't come in. Um, and he's like, you might have to have a car to get in. You, here's the section for this. If you want to do returns, you can't do it here. You have to do it over here. Here's the dressing rooms. You know, you go to this dressing room, you go to that dressing room. Um, he's like, so there are rules that we all obey and agree to. And no one would say Macy's is a government. And the other example he uses, like eBay has a fantastic returns policy um, in case people get screwed and all these other things. And so these are private companies that do this. And we, we would not call either of these things government and they don't require coercion to do that. And the main, you know, issue I have with that is these are all examples of things that exist within a society that has a robust legal framework, which is one of the things Hayek mentions later in the chapter. It's like you have to have some form of government, some form of legal framework to address the areas where prices aren't doing it, aren't sufficient. Um, you know, when it comes to like the environment stuff, we'll get into that. But but the idea that like you can imagine a world without government or without any type of rules whatsoever based on um, institutions that exist within a world that does have laws and governments, um, it, to use those as examples is ridiculous to me. It's like you have to look at what did it look like in the places where there actually weren't governments and it was this utopian thing where people were just, you know, dogmatic laissez-faire, as he puts it, you know, the example I think of is, is the Wild West, whenever there was um, no... Yeah, Mad, Mad Max. Well, I mean, Mad Max doesn't exist, but it was kind of like Mad Max. Right, yeah, but, yeah. but my point is, it's like, that's look the at example the places. I always use. This is what's going to happen right. if we eliminate this thing. Yeah, and it's like, well, no, maybe not Mad Max, but it's it might be like, you know, New Mexico or Arizona or, you know, Colorado before they were states, you know, before whenever it was just people out there in the frontier. And that's why they, the term Wild West has a connotation that's like both negative and positive. The Wild West is like, it's the Wild West, man. Like people are doing whatever they want. But you, there's other times where people was like, we don't want this to be like the Wild West. Like you have to have some type of thing to make sure things don't I've, get I've seen that movie. No, thanks. Um, I don't want to have it turn into oh, a, a Will Smith picture. Oh, yeah, The giant metal spider? Yeah. Save a Selma Hayek from the big metal spider. <laughs> old school South Park reference. Yeah. But yep. anyway, but yeah, but just to address that, like Hayek is saying like there has to be and, and mostly I'm just kind of pontificating on my, what's my own internal things that I'm thinking about and trying to sort through right now. Um, but that there does have to be some form of government here and Hayek is advocating for that. So it's like, we probably agree on a lot of the same things. It's just, there's some very specific things like how much government with how much power to, to what ends. Um, that distinction is, is not just important. It's, it's the distinction. It's the distinction yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to just uh, continue on kind of the flip side. So a lot of the stuff you just mentioned now, I'm just going to quote from the book. So Hayek believes that there are some uh, areas and examples in which a free market will function ineffectively, for example, quoting from the book here, um, is impractical to make the enjoyment of certain services dependent on the payment of a price. Competition will not produce services, think roads, road signs, and bridges, and the price system becomes similarly ineffective when the damage caused to others by certain uses of property cannot be effectively charged to the owner of that property, think pollution, uh, deforestation, and unethical uh, farming techniques. So there are definitely some arenas there that um, same arguments as today. Same, exactly, same things. Exactly. Um, but but then he goes on to quote uh, where where we need to caution by going too far. So uh, quote again: uh, In such instances, we find some substitute for the regulation by the price mechanism. But the fact that we have to resort to the substitution of direct regulation by authority where the conditions for the proper working of competition cannot be created does not prove that we should sur suppress competition where it may be made to function. We do not, just because it works in this one place, just because we can coherently work to build an interstate does not mean we should be building every single you know building in, in the entire country via a central planning board, right? Um, we need to, to say that, okay, it works here, but, but what if competition can fill in this gap? Because it can do it more effectively. We know that. It, it can do it according to what people actually want, their needs. We know that. And this kind of is going to start to go into the next chapter. What happens um, when you say, you know what, I, I don't, you know, a central planning board or the government just says, you know what, no, we're just going to have uh, the government take care of this. You know, the, this individual uh, liberty aspect goes so far until, you know, we find this one industry and then we want to take it over uh, via central planning. Yep. And I've seen, I think in the last week and a half, two weeks, 
articles um, from mainstream, you know, uh, corporate press. Um, I like the distinction that Malice says. He's like, I don't want to call them mainstream media because a lot of the ideas they're putting out there are not mainstream ideas. Most people actually disagree with a lot of this. Um, and so the, the corporate press where it's like, is housing infrastructure? So they're talking about like Biden administration wants to do this big infrastructure bloated thing. I'm just going to get pissed if I go too much into it. But the point is, is that like, you're like that just because they can, we can build a road, it doesn't mean that they should build every single building. And so they're like, is housing infrastructure. And I think I also saw is, uh, Childcare or pre-K child childcare infrastructure, you know, or something like I we've seen these arguments like, is this infrastructure? It's like, what do you know? A bridge is infrastructure. A road is infrastructure. A babysitter is not infrastructure. You lunatic. And so, but these are the arguments that people make where it's like, it, there is no, um, there's no logical endpoint to a lot of these arguments in that same interview where, uh, well, no, this might've been one that I posted where Malice talked to Jordan Peterson he mentioned that um, like the WWJD, what would Jesus do thing was uh, created by a Christian socialist. And the idea is that it's like, it's not about saving the soul of an individual, but it's about saving the soul of a country. And if it's about like the morality and the soul of a country, there is no logical endpoint to the scope of which government has in that, in that thing, because it's like, it's the whole thing. There is no logical distinction between where the individual begins and the government ends and vice versa. And so whenever there is these people like arguing for how all of this is infrastructure, how all of this is this, um, and the central planning thing, there's no, and, and by the way, it's that way on purpose that there is no logical distinction between the individual and the government and, you know, where the, the government, you know, what's that old, you know, the saying, I, I think I mentioned it before in the last episode is like, your right to swing your fist ends where my face begins. It's like the government's right to swing its fist also ends where our face begins. But under this ideology, there is no, there, that line isn't there um, because the, the rights and the desires of the government, i.e. this bureaucratic elite, um, supersedes any rights and desires of an individual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so uh, just to end this chapter, we have another quote here. I don't really think we need to to get into this. I think we've kind of beat beat uh, this sure. one on the ground. But but effectively, I mean to to read one of uh, or at least the beginning of the quote that I do think is important is it, the quote. It is of the utmost importance to the argument of this book for the reader to keep in mind that the planning against which all our criticisms is directed is solely planning against competition, the planning, yep. which is to be substituted for competition. That is the planning yep. we want to avoid. That is, uh, you know, something that if competition can work in that arena, it will always be more effective. Uh, and, and even if it's not always as effective as we want it to be, it doesn't advance as fast as we want it to be. It is much better than the alternative, which is government coercion. Yep. No, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, so to kind of sum up this chapter three, um, Hayek is making the point that one, socialism is a version of collectivism. Um, and as such, it's it, where collect, what collectivism does, every, every criticism of collectivism and every virtue, you know, as such of collectivism applies to socialism. And, you know, what he talks about at the beginning is the, the main argument people are having here, there's all these people who use socialism just as a stand-in or as a shorthand for social justice or these things that they want um, and, and don't think about it as a thing that actually does things, you know, or that requires certain policies and things to be put into place first. They just think, you know, it's underpants gnomes. Again, it's like socialism, question mark, justice. Socialism, question mark, equality. Um, and so they just see it as equality, you know, or as justice or social justice. Um, and so his, his point here is like, we're, there are all these people, you know, myself included, yourself included, Hayek included, who actually agree that we should have a society that is just, a society that is fair, you know, uh, you know according to using definitions that are logical, not the definitions we hear today. Um, and so, you know, don't say that because we disagree with your means of getting there, i.e. socialism, that we don't care about the ends. Um, that That's completely ri ridiculous. And that was what was happening then. And that's what we're seeing today. This has been the same. It's just, you know, grow, blowing up this kind of moral grandstanding um, and, and demagoguing these issues. And he goes on to steel man, you know, what some of those criticisms might be, uh, you know, what are the valid criticisms and, and where they might fall apart. 
Um, and, the, and he does try to find common ground by saying, look, I'm not arguing for no government. I'm not arguing for no planning. That doesn't make sense. I'm arguing that there can't be a top-down total complaining or complain, total planning, um, like you said at the end, against competition. We have to have, we have to plan for competition, around competition, um, but we can't, you know, have this top-down thing and, and, call, and assume it's going to lead to social justice or whatever, because it's actually probably going to lead to tyranny and, and destruction of rights. I don't know what, if you'd add anything else to that. I don't feel like that was a very good summary, to be honest, but. No, um, I mean, it's hard to, to summarize uh, uh, even one chapter of this book in, in a way that seems sufficient to cover all the, the these profound things he said, but, but I do think that this is one of those chapters that a lot of his critics didn't seem to read. Uh, if they read mm. it at all. And that's what he brings up a lot in the introduction, especially in the American version um, where, you know, the pushback against it in America uh, was just as strong as the people who advocated for it. Because again, the big difference here between the European release, which was in 1944, they went through socialism. They understand what it is. They actually had it in practice. And then it came out into America, American paperback version in 1956, where America did not have this in practice. They did not have the experience of collectivism, at least not mm -hmm. at the scale. Certainly had, um, you know, the, the, the new deal and uh, all those, those uh, collectivist um, policies, but they, they didn't have it in the same way that Europe had it. So uh, the, the uh, reaction to this book was either really, really high where these, a lot of people that he said, uh, like, I don't agree with the people who are praising me because they're using this version of dogmatic laissez-faire attitudes to praise this book and saying that I agree with all these things and government should say out of everything. That's not what I'm saying. And then on the opposite side where they say, uh, you know, if, if government wants to build a sidewalk, that's socialism. That's, that's not yep. what he's saying either. Um, and both those are unfair. And this is a perfect chapter to really understand. And, and I like what you say there. He, as opposed to straw manning, which so many books do uh, their, their opposition, he does quite literally steel man um, their position to make sure that he's he's being as generous to them as possible, which makes it even a, a better book because it helps you understand this balance of both sides a bit more, yep. and, and this makes it more more relatable now. Totally, 